All right. How are we tonight? Decent enough? Good. Uh, my name is Garland. Uh, it's good to be back in here. Um, I had the privilege, the joy of uh, kind of leading this team, the college ministry, for the last six years until uh, this past year. We handed off to Josh and Book Out and Eileen and Joanna. They're doing an amazing uh, job. And so, yeah, it's good to be back for the last six years. Sunday night, I was here every single week. And so, uh, just being here kind of brings back some memories for me. And it's good to be here. Uh, let me introduce myself if you don't know who I am. Uh, this is me and my family. My kind of my primary earthly identity is wrapped up in these, this little crew right here my wife, Sarah, and our three, Titus, Hattie, and Collins. Now, it's been a couple of years since I've shown this video. And if you've been around, you've probably seen it. If you're like a junior or senior, you, you might know where we're going here. My favorite way to introduce myself because it really helps you to see kind of how our family dynamic is. And a lot of what you're going to see in this video from my son, it really is reflecting a lot of what he's learned and found in me, okay? So we call this at our house the pie face video. And let me set it up for you. Uh, it's one of our favorite videos from our house. Uh, there's a little game with a little spring-loaded plastic hand, and it throws whipped cream on you as you spin this little wheel or something like that. I'm not exactly sure how it works. And it's funny because it throws whipped cream in your face. Now, we're going to see the video. I'm going to play it twice. It's real short, so you can see it. Um, you're going to see the, the game happening. You'll watch my son kind of sheepishly begin the game, and then he'll kind of back off. Then one of our other really good friends, his name's Brooks, he'll have the pie hit him in the face. Then Titus will have the same experience. We get to watch his reaction. I'm going to watch it twice. I'll kind of narrate as we go. Uh, hit that for me, if you don't mind back there. This is Titus. So turn the volume up a little bit, yeah. He didn't really like it. He's a little nervous. Here comes Brooks. Now Titus loves it. Watch Titus. He thinks it's great. Now watch Titus's reaction. Let's watch it one more time. Turn it up a little more even so we can experience it. It's full. One more time. Let's see it together here. We play this like once a month at our house. Let's see it one more time, if you don't mind. Sarah, my wife, says he gets it all from me. Uh, cue it one more time for me, whoever. Yeah. Or get a stand at the screen. That's better. Is it working? It's frozen? Huh? It fro oh, it froze up. Hey, everybody, I want you to turn around. So turn around these crew right here. They are awesome, and they do amazing. That's Chris Tucker in the back and Mike Grain. Give them a hand because they serve every week behind the scenes, and you never notice them until something like this happens, and it rarely does. And so uh, they do an awesome job. Um, I'll continue to introduce myself, uh, and we can maybe watch it at the end. So uh, a couple of things by way of announcement for you before we get rolling here. Um, the first thing is if you are seriously dating or if you are engaged, our next merge class will be starting on October 2nd. It's right there in the Student Center. So if that's you seriously dating or engaged, I would have you raise your hand, but you may not be clear about your relationship status. That might embarrass you right now. So I won't make you do that because like one of the girls might be like, yeah, that's us. The guy's like, I'm out of here. I'm done. Okay, she's way too far. Um, so um, the next one will start October 2nd. Okay, so we'd love to get you connected to our premarital eight-week experience here. Uh, the second announcement that I have for you is every year, it became kind of a tradition around here. It wasn't really, nobody wanted this tradition, but it was a tradition nonetheless where I would make a bold prediction for the upcoming Razorback football season, okay? And y'all didn't get to experience this because I wasn't here in August. And I started making my prediction to my friends in the office and our, my family. So I already had this prediction. Here's my last year's bold prediction. Last year's bold prediction was, if it would pull up, clicking. My last year's bold prediction was 
that Arkansas would sweep all of the Texas teams, A&M and Texas and Texas State. And I was a prophet last year. I nailed that, okay? I was exactly right. I have a bold prediction. I've been making this prediction already this year, okay? So it, it, it predates what happened last weekend, not yesterday, but last weekend. Here's my bold prediction for 2022. My bold prediction for 22. Texas A&M sucks and will finish last in the SEC West. Thank you. I feel really good about it. And I already was saying this, and then last week happened at Appalachian State. Okay, felt really good about it. And that, you know what that means for this week. I'm just saying. Okay, here we go. Uh, we probably need to talk about James. That's why we're here. We're studying the letter to James. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and start turning to the book of James. Uh, there's, a, there's a particular, it's a particular emotion it's an action that we experience, and we're trained from a very, very young age that this emotion, this action is bad, it's wrong, it's evil. If you feel it, you should try to run from it. You should try to avoid this feeling when you experience it. Don't do this. And from a very young age, our narratives even reinforce this idea. Now, here's the emotion. Here's the action. Here's what it is, what we're talking about. The action that I'm describing is jealousy. From a very young age, we're trained to avoid jealousy and run from it at all costs. Like, think about Scar in The Lion King, okay? I'm assuming most of you have seen The Lion King or know what's going on. Scar is jealous of his brother's power, his brother's reputation, his brother's standing and status, and as a result, it leads to him feeling anger and bitterness towards his brother and takes it out in violence and even kills him. If you haven't seen it, sorry, you should have seen it by now, okay? No, I can't help that, Okay. Jealousy, from a very, very young age, we are trained to see it as a bad thing, an evil thing, something to be avoided. And this can create problems for us when we come to the scripture and we find passages like what we're gonna see in our passage tonight in James 4. See it. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he, God, jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? And James is certainly, he has in his mind an Old Testament idea. We see it regularly in our Old Testament. Here's a really clear example in Exodus 34. Notice, do not worship any other God, the Lord says, for the Lord, Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. When you're tempted to go in and get it like a, like a tattoo, get a Hebrew word, put on like your, your wrist is always where people seem to get it. I bet you're not going in there going, I want jealous put here. It's unlikely that's what you're going to get put there. Whose name is jealous. I don't know about you, when, when you come across passages like this in the Bible, it can be a little bit off-putting. In fact, uh, this was years ago. So Oprah, I'm, I'm assuming we still know who Oprah is. We know Oprah? Still, people don't? Okay. So this was about 15 years ago. Oprah was sharing her spiritual journey. And what she said was she was raised in a kind of a fundamentalist Christian environment, and she ended up leaving the church. She doesn't espouse uh, the Christian beliefs. And one of the things she says in her journey is this. She says she was at a church, probably similar to this, with somebody teaching up in the front, and they were teaching on a passage about God's jealousy. And she says, she's, this is her first-person account, she says, there's something stuck in me. Is this, the pastor's up there talking about the, the jealous God. God is jealous. And she said, that didn't sit right with me. And as I began to think about it, I thought, how could God be jealous? Like, Really? I thought he was supposed to be good. How could he have this emotion? It began a journey for her of walking away from her Christian foundation that she had. When we see these passages, it can be a little strange for us. 
And tonight, we're going to come across one of those passages. I'm calling this, because James is going, to give, is going to give us this kind of imagery and language in our passage tonight. I'm calling this spiritual adultery, James 4, 1 to 12. Now, here's our outline, kind of our three points where we're going to go tonight. First, we have to rightly understand the loving jealousy of God. What does it mean for God to be jealous? Second of all, we have to see what James is going to help us to see, our foolish infidelity, all the ways in which we can be flirtatious with the world. And what he's going to say is you're cheating on God. And lastly, what's our only hope to be put right? So the loving jealousy of God, our foolish infidelity, and our only hope of reconciliation. Now, here's the deal before we move forward. Um, I recognize that for some of you, just the, the title alone, spiritual adultery, maybe for some of you, you were in a relationship, maybe it was really serious, and somebody really wounded you because they cheated on you. Or maybe even more wounding, this is part of my story, maybe your parents, their marriage fell apart because of adultery. When I was two years old, that's what happened in my parents' marriage, and they ended up getting a divorce, and I can still feel the pain of what that caused for me as a little two-year-old. And it marked a lot of the first part of my life, the first probably decade of my life was dealing with my parents' divorce because of this. And I'll tell you something, I'm not being cute with the title, spiritual adultery. I wasn't trying to think of something provocative. This is the language James is gonna use tonight. He wants to take you and I there. So I'm sensitive to that. You may have a similar story to me. Just the word adultery can bring up emotion in you. And I understand that. So I'm gonna have to be sensitive. And we're gonna have to allow the spirit to work on us tonight. This is a heavy passage. I taught this passage a few years ago in, in a Sunday morning here. And I didn't want to teach it, and I don't really want to tonight. It's in my face, and it's going to be in your face. And with that in mind, let's pray, shall we? Let's just pray. Father, you are good to us, merciful to us, and gracious to us. And it's my prayer right now on behalf of myself and all of us that we can have some honest moments of reflection tonight. Thank you for James's boldness and courage to speak these words to his community of Jesus followers in his day, and may they resound through the millennia and land on our ears and our hearts tonight. And we ask this by the Spirit and in the power of Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's get to work. What do we mean by the loving jealousy of God? Here's the passage, James 4.4. James starts on a light note here. You adulteresses, you adulterous people. Real cheery as he comes along this section of James. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend to the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, I want to pause. I think for many of us, right off the bat, we say language like this. We're like, that's over the top, man. Like, seriously? Like, can we, being a little dramatic, aren't we, James? You make a, you're a friend with the world. You're like an enemy to God. I want you to see, James is using an image for us that we have to begin to understand when he says, you adulterous people. Yes, it is provocative, and yes, it gets our attention, and yes, it seems dramatic, but I want you to see something. James understands that God, he takes the initiative to invite us into a relationship with him, into intimacy with him, and closeness with him. Because God knows that when we experience intimacy with, with him, that we will find the fullness of our joy, the fullness of our pleasure in knowing him. See, God frequently in the scriptures will speak about himself and use language like, I'm like a spouse 
to you. Almost certainly James has in the back of his mind passages like Isaiah 54. You can write that down in James. Notice the language. The scripture talks about God as powerful and transcendent and the creator and the king and the sovereign one and all that's true. But have you ever noticed the language of God like this? He says, your maker, it's like a, I'm like a husband to you. I'm like somebody who wants to dote over his bride. I'm like somebody who gushes over you and wants to celebrate you in every way. He invites people into nearness with him. Do you see how vulnerable this makes him? Do you see how close this makes him? How, at, how near and at hand he is? I think for so many of us, the vision of God that we have is this distant, kind of out there, far off, kind of grumpy, if we're being honest, kind of mad at us, grandpa in the sky figure. And God says, no, 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 I'm, I'm like a spouse to you. Don't you know that I have your joy in mind? And so James then says, he says, if that's how God has made himself available to you and to me, when we cozy up with the world, when we cozy up with things besides him, when we flirt with things besides him, we literally break his heart. This is why he follows it by saying, don't you know that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? Now, let's get some things straight here. When I think of jealousy, when I hear the word jealousy, and I think when Oprah hears jealousy, when she sees it on the page like this, what she thinks of is our dictionary.com definition of jealousy. And here it is, just regular old run-of-the-mill definition of this word goes something like this. It's feeling or showing envy for someone or something for their achievements or their advantages. When I hear jealousy, almost always my mind goes to like junior high, like junior high students. I used to lead a lot of junior high cell groups around here. And junior high is that place where jealousy oftentimes is really easy to see. They have the girl I want or the boy I want. They have the, the, the coach's attention and I deserve it. Uh, they have the parents that I want. They have the grades that I want. And then as high school comes, as they have the car that I want. They had the date that I want. They got to go to the party that I want. They still got the coach's playing time that I want. They're a captain and I should be. And it's easy to identify like middle school and junior high students. Can I just make an observation about us? Is anything all that much different now that you're out of junior high? Are we really that much different or are we, st we still find ourselves constantly struggling with this? They get the attention that I want. They have the body that I want. They got into the sorority that I deserve, or they got into the fraternity that I want. They got the grades that I want. They're gonna have the degree that I want. They've got the parents that I want. They got the car that I want. They got the scholarship that I want. And so easily, this can be all over our heart. So junior high or now, a lot of that's still the same. But this is not what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about jealousy, when it's talking about God. Sometimes the Bible talks about this, says, avoid this, this kind of jealousy. But you know how there's certain words in the Bible that in different contexts, they have completely different meanings? Like it's sometimes God says, do not fear. And other times it says, fear the Lord. So which is it? Well, it depends on the context. What do we mean? The same thing is true with this word jealousy. When James is speaking of God's jealousy, he's not talking about this. So here's a, here's a Garland Autry definition for you of what godly jealousy is. It's this. It's passion for the relationship against anything that would harm it. It's loyalty and dedication to the object of one's love in such a way that they would fight anything that would harm the object of your love. Like a, like a simple example is my three kids. I mean, here they are in all their splendor right here. It's about as good as it gets for my kids, okay? Um, you would, if you were to come into my house, we have a street out in front of our house, 
This literally happened two days ago, and it scared the crap out of me, okay? There's a street in front of my house, and cars go down. And uh, if I were to sit there in a chair, and my kids are playing, and they're going out towards the street, they're on their scooters, they're going down the hill towards the street. If I were to sit there, and my kids are going towards the street, here comes a car. And I know it's dangerous. And you were to approach me and say, you need to do something, say something. Now, you can imagine, if I were just sitting in my chair, seeing it happen, and if I went, I mean, I've told them not to go out in the street. I've warned them. And after all, I don't want to seem too controlling. I want them to make some mistakes. We all got to learn from our mistakes. You'd be like, no, 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 no. Do something. Like, it is necessary for me as a parent in those moments to fight for the object of my love. It is required of me for me to be indifferent towards it or standoffish towards it. You would say, you are an unloving father. We think about the loving jealousy of God. What we have to understand is it is passion for the object of his love against anything that would harm it. That's what God is after. That's what James means when he says he jealousy longs for what he's made in us. God knows. So hear me. God knows that when we find in him our value and our beauty, our significance, our worth, we know we measure up because we, we look in our spouse's eyes and we can see he loves me. That's all I need. He knows that when we do that, we, can, we find the fullness of our joy. Hear me. And he knows that anything else outside of that will ultimately rob you of joy. Anything else outside of that will ultimately overpromise and underdeliver. And so God is passionate for the objects of his love against anything that would harm him. And James wants to get you and I's attention. Now let's see if Lewis help us. We have to get the right understanding of God and his relationship to us down first. Hear what he says. He says, as long as a person is thinking of God as an examiner who has set him a sort of paper to do. Now, what does that mean? As long as we're thinking about God almost like a teacher, and for so long in my life, the way that I looked at God was essentially he was like a teacher, but like a mean teacher. He gave us a test called life, and he said, go out there. And by the way, it's an impossible test. You can't pass it, and everything, even when you do the good stuff, I'll know your motives were bad. So go pass. And by the way, anything besides 100, you go to hell. I think for many of us, that's the way we view God. We view God as an examiner has given us a test to take. As long as we view him that way, we'll never find our joy. And he continues. He says, or as long as we see him as the opposite party in a sort of bargain, as long as we're always making claims and counterclaims between ourselves and God. Here's what that means. Many of you have landlords, even if it's the U of A. We think of God almost like a landlord and we're the tenant. Here's how that relationship works. You put in the, the you pay the bills, then the landlord has their obligations to make sure the property's taken care of and to make sure things work. And as long as you pay the bills, the, 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 the landlord has certain responsibilities to you. It's claims and counterclaims. I think for so much of my life, that's the way I viewed God. It, will, it looked like this. Maybe some of you are with me. I went, listen, God, I'm, I'm paying the rent here. I, I go to church. I'm not sleeping around. I'm not drinking. I'm not partying. Like, I even read my Bible outside of church. I'm leading small groups. I'm doing everything here. I'm doing everything you ask. So you better give me the, the good, happy life that I expect and want. And the second that those things don't happen, we can get frustrated and mad at God. Look, I put in the time. I paid the bills. Why aren't you giving me what I want? 
And Lewis says, as long as we see God as either of those two ways, we're not yet in the right relationship to him. Have you come to see that God ultimately has your joy in mind? Skeptical friends in the room, maybe you're here and you're not a Jesus follower. Can I just give you insights into what we mean when we talk about the love of God? What we mean is God is not after, he's not a, he's not a big wet blanket to your fun in life, giving us a bunch of rules, like a teacher. No, he wants the fullness of your joy. He's passionate about your joy. Jesus followers in the room, Christians, do you see him as a teacher, kind of a mean teacher, or kind of an absent landlord? Have you come to see him as spouse? So if you do, it unlocks your joy, a joy that's pervasive even in circumstance. The first thing we have to see is that the loving jealousy of God, he must have it or he's unloving. He must be passionate about the object of his love or how could we trust him? Now, what do we mean by the foolish infidelity of people? This is Sarah and I. This would be 13 years ago. We're at 13 years of marriage and three kids later. How about that? Uh, 13 years ago, we stood, and here's, we got married uh, at a barn, outside of a barn. Nobody gets married in churches anymore, it seems. Uh, so we got married at a barn, and uh, on that day, I can tell you, and I've, and I've got the privilege now of officiating uh, many weddings. Here's, here's how the vows go, okay? You, you stand up there, and you have your family and friends, and the bride comes down, and the guy's up there, and uh, the bride comes down, and she's glowing, and the bridesmaids come in, and everybody's looking, and sometimes people are crying, and I was trying to hold it together. I was like, this is the craziest thing ever, and she looks so great, and here they come, and here's, you can imagine this happening. She gets to the front, and you know, you're, you, you face the pastor, they say, who gives this woman, mother and I, and then you come together, and you face each other, and eventually you're supposed to say vows, okay? That's why you're there, after all, to say these vows. Some of you are seriously dating right now, and you're like, oh, yes, we're so close to it. If he would only propose, what's he doing? Okay, anyway, so you're standing there, and you face to face. Can you imagine, like, I want to know if you would leave this wedding if, this were, if these were the vows. Can you imagine? We stand there, we look at each other, and imagine that these were my vows. Sarah, that's already a little harsh. Sarah, I don't know why I said it like that. Um, I promise to do my best to love you, and to honor you, and cherish you in health. We'll see about sickness. And uh, I will forsake most others, but I'm gonna be honest. Imagine it. But I'll be honest, if somebody younger or prettier or sexier comes along, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to be bailing on this. But, unless, uh, but otherwise, I'll be with you. It'll be great. Till death or, you know, if something better comes along, do us part. Would you leave? How many of you would walk out? Like, if you heard a vow like that, you're like, this ain't going to work. Yeah, I'm out of here. Okay? Yeah, me too. Why? We know something inherently true on that day. On that day, you are making a radical break with every other relationship that you have before and after. It's a decisive moment that takes place that day. It's a promise before this person, their family, and God. And we totally understand that. Now, can I tell you, one of my favorite parts of my job is officiating weddings. One of my least favorite parts of my job as a pastor here, one of my least favorite parts of my job is walking couples through the pain of their marriage collapsing. We have to do it. Uh, especially when their marriage begins to collapse because of adultery, because of an affair. And I can think of numerous examples where I've been in living rooms and an affair has happened. And whoever the offending part, both parties are crying. And it is so 
painful to be there. Now, can I tell you, none of those living rooms I've been in where the marriage was imploding because of adultery, none of them thought they were going to get there. None of them thought on their wedding day, I'll probably cheat on you. Yeah, I think I'll probably cheat on you in a few years. Nobody thought that on their wedding day. So what happened? Little small compromises along the way. Not rectifying a conflict. Flirting with somebody at the office or somebody at the gym or somebody at, the cl- uh, at school. And then what began as something small and almost innocent grows. And over time, what happens is now it turns into a full-blown affair. And it's so painful. Now, the reason, I, the reason we go here is the language of James. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that to cozy up with the world, friendship with the world, little small flirtation here, a little compromise there, it's like a severe problem. It's hostility with God. Christians in the room, hear me. I'm talking to you for a minute. To say, yeah, 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 I love God and all. He's changed my life. And then to go and flirt on the side with the world and the things of the world. God says, no, no, we've had a decisive break here. We got betrothed together. You can't do that. You can't say, yeah, 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 yeah. I love you. I make a vow to you. And then over here, man, but this is fun. This gives me pleasure. What does it mean to be friend with the world? Uh, First century scholar, New Testament theologian, commentator Craig Blomberg says this. This is really helpful. He says, friendship in antiquity was usually taken far more seriously than in today's Western world. It was seen as a lifelong pact between people with shared values and loyalties. Hear it. Friendship in James's day indicated identification to and relationship with something or someone. So here's the last line. To be friends with the world means to identify with its standards in its priorities, its values, its ways of defining things. As James looks out into the Roman world of his day, he sees a world where sexuality is defined in a strange and pervasive way where just we would look at the ancient Roman world and be like, man, y'all are crazy with how y'all define sex and sex practices. He looks at a world where 30% of the population is enslaved, 70% lives in adject poverty. It's like injustice run rampant. He looks out into a world where there's idols all over the place. They say, you must bow to us or you can't get along in society. You find your standing and your honor because you worship at these shrines and these temples. James looks out into his world and he says, you can't flirt with it. You can't dip your toe in the water. You can't be friends with it. You can't identify with it. You've made a severe break. You've got a new loyalty, and it's to your king, Jesus. Now notice the last line. To be friends with the world means to identify with its standards and its priorities and its ways of defining things and its ways of saying you matter and its ways of finding your identity and its ways of determining if you matter, if you're beautiful or not. So when you look out into our day, Christians, where do you identify? Where are you flirting with the standards and the values, priorities of our world? Where are you friend with the world? I told you I didn't want to go here tonight. This is hard for me. When we look out into our world and how our culture says, this is how you know you matter. This is how you know that you are accepted. This is how you know that you're beautiful. This is where you can find your esteem. Do those pull you in? 
they give you a sense of joy. They give you a momentary high. You just find yourself flirting with it. Let's get, I mean, James is practical, so let's get practical here. Where in your life, I've been doing business in my life, okay? Where in your life are you going, Christians? Yeah, 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 yeah. I love you, God. It's awesome. I'm in, yeah. And yet over here, you don't take the slightest steps towards purity in your dating relationships. You don't take the slightest steps towards fighting off sexual sin in your life. James would say, you're cheating on God. It's a decisive break that you must make. Say, yeah, 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 but I won't do these things. James would say, you're flirting with the world. It can't work. It's going to break you, and you're breaking God's heart. Or you say, yeah, 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 yeah. I love you, God. I love you, God. And yet, you go, I love the status I get. I love the acceptance I get because I smoke that or drink that or sleep with her, sleep with him, at this, or I go to this party I'm invited. Like, I get it. I get how our world defines things. I get how our world tells you that you, make, that you matter. But if you're saying, yeah, 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 God, you're, the, you're it. That's all I need in here. And over here, you're going, man, but this, this gives me my pleasure. This gives me my happiness. James would say, no, you're cheating on God, and you're going to break your own life. You say, yeah, 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 God, I love you. But you never spend time with him. You never study the scriptures. You never pray. You don't know where your Bible is. You, you, you don't spend time with him. You're looking at God as an examiner or as a landlord, but not as the lover of your soul. Or you say, yeah, 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 God, I love you. But you have no filter on what you're putting in your brain from social media, from YouTube, from the news, from voices in our culture. They're all the louder voice, and God is by far the quietest or the last voice. And that might be a lot of things. It could be, it could be what you're looking at on social media. It could be the movies that you're watching. It could be the shows that you're binging. I can, I can tell you one from my life. This was years ago. Um, Sarah and I were watching a show on HBO, and it was about a basically a crew that was just partied up in L.A., and every night they would go out and party, and every night they were, you know, hooking up with different people, and it, was, it won a bunch of awards. It was really well-written. It was really funny, and Sarah and I watched the first season. We kind of binge-watched it, and I'll never forget, we were about to start the second season, and I don't think we, I think we might have had one kid at this point, and I looked at her, and I said, I said, I don't know how to say this. I think this show's awesome. I think it's really funny, but I find myself being less satisfied by you and wanting to go chase this kind of a lifestyle because we got like a baby at the house. At the house. I, f- I remember thinking, I don't like my life, and this life looks really gra- glamorous. Don't hear me, okay? Don't hear me. I'm not saying that you can only listen to Christian music or watch Christian movies. Lord knows most Christian movies suck, all right? So I'm not saying that, okay? And most Christian movies, uh, most Christian music isn't all that good, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you only listen to KLRC. I'm not saying that, okay? What I am saying is you're saying, yeah, 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 yeah. But you don't even think about what you're putting into your brain and into your heart. Are you with me? When you look out, we look out into our world. Do we even think about it? Or are we cozied up? I love how Piper, sometimes he can just land a line. Okay, hear this one. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, you, don't, you haven't tasted the, the goodness and the love that he gives you. And hear him, this is really insightful. He says, it is because you have not drunk deeply of his love to be satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. Hear me, God's not a wet blanket trying to ruin your fun. 
He's after your joy. He wants you to experience the great things, to drink them deeply and not settle for a cheap imitation. That's the painful thing about sitting in these living rooms, these couples. They had the real thing and they traded it out for a cheap imitation. I think Piper's right. So the question for you and the question for, question for me, where do you see yourself right now trying to nibble at the table of the world and asking it to be enough, stuffing your soul with small things? Where is that in your life? Where is that in my life? Now, what is reconciliation? Reconciliation is when two parties are at odds and they're brought back together. When Sarah is mad at me because I do lots of stupid things, we need to be reconciled, brought back together. So what's our hope for that? I want you to see it in the passage. Uh, Caroline Madden is a, uh, she's a marriage counselor, and she said this, and I think she's right. She says, in my experience, it's not affairs that break up marriages. It's the unfaithful spouse's inability to be honest about what happened and leave the affair behind. And here's what she's saying. When there's a real genuine wound in a marriage, the only way they can be reconciled back together is when the offending party comes back with tears, saying, I've made a huge mistake. I'm not going there. I'm never going there again. We would call that repentance. Look at what James does as the passage concludes. You've got 11 commands. They're imperatives of the Greek uh, Greek text, imperatives or commands. And they're sandwiched between two that mirror each other. Submit yourselves then to God and humble yourselves before the Lord. Those form what uh, nerdy scholars call an inclusio or a bracket, okay? You've got these two commands, and what is sandwiched in between are nine, is that nine? Nine, is that nine? Yeah, nine in the middle, nine imperatives. And they give you a picture of what repentance looks like. It says, resist the devil. There is a spiritual power behind the world systems. Do you not know this? Do you know this? C.S. Lewis will say in other places, if you haven't met Satan recently, you're probably going his way. There's a world, there's a power behind the world systems out there. And it's evil. And James says, you gotta stand against it. He says, come near to God. Run away from those other lovers. This is literal translation. Wash hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I mean, look at this language. Man, I love teaching books of the Bible verse by verse because how often are you going to hear, you know what? Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and change your joy to gloom. This is the snapshot, these imperatives of what repentance looks like, to be restored to finding our joy in God. And yet again, I, I, I like how other people say so. That's why I quote so much. Tim Keller says, repentance is not less than being sorry for individual sins. Of course we feel bad, but it means much more. It is then, hear this, confessing the things besides God himself that you have been relying on for your hope, your significance, and your security. So Christians and non-Christians in the room, what are you relying on for your hope? Your significance tells you you're beautiful, that you matter for your security, for your pleasure. What are you running to? What are you saying? I have to have this or I have nothing. Because it's so much more than just feeling bad. 
It's acknowledging those things and bringing them to the light and saying, that's a cheap imitation. Now, how do we get back to God before we take communion? I left verse six out on purpose. I want you to see it. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But look at verse six. But, but he gives a greater grace. He gives us more grace. Isn't that beautiful? The broken adulteresses who so often run, and then James goes, but he gives even, even more grace. Look at the second half of verse eight. He says, come near to God. And how will he respond? In anger, in bitterness towards you? No, 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 no. But he'll draw near to you. He'll run towards you. Go, go read Luke 15. What came to my mind as I was reflecting on this is there's a story in the Old Testament. Here's how we close. It's in the prophetic books that we don't like to read because they're weird in Old Testament stuff. Uh, and it's, it's called Hosea. And Hosea, God tells him, I want you to go marry a woman and she's gonna treat you terribly. How would you like that call for your life? She's gonna treat you terribly. In fact, she's gonna cheat on you over and over and over again, over years. She's gonna have kids by these other men even. And it's gonna hurt. And yet, the more she runs from you, the more you're gonna love her, Hosea. And it's gonna be so bad, you're gonna take care of her. You're gonna provide her water and wool and food. And she's gonna be telling everyone, no, 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 no. My other lovers provided for me my water and my wool and my food. It was them that provided it, but all along you're gonna provide it. You're gonna love her and be faithful to her even though she runs from you. And then God flips it. In Hosea 2, he begins to say, now Hosea, what you're experiencing, that's what I'm like. I'm, you're experiencing what it's like to be me. And your wife, who she has an unfortunate name, her name is Gomer. Uh, if you got that name, sorry, it's a, it's a bad name. Uh, so he says, Gomer's like my people, constantly unfaithful. And God flips it as he describes himself. He says, therefore, I'm going to allure her. I'm gonna lead her out into the wilderness. And how will God speak to his unfaithful bride out there? going to rebuke her, condemn her, speak harshly over her. No, no, no. And there I will speak tenderly to her. In that day, declares the Lord, no longer will you look at me and say, master, teacher, landlord. No, no, no. You'll call me my husband. It's the outrageous grace of God. He's chasing us down. How far was he willing to go to draw near to you and to me? even unfaithful you and me. He came so close that he had spikes driven into his hands and into his feet and thorns drilled into his head, beaten into his head. He was hung up on a cross like a common Roman criminal. That's how far he was willing to go to draw close to you and draw close to me. So here's how we're gonna close tonight. We're gonna take communion. Communion's a family thing for Jesus followers in the room. If you're not one of those, uh, nobody's gonna judge you, I promise. Just stay seated, no big deal. Um, if you got questions about that, I'll be sitting right here. I'd love to process what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. But the table's gonna be available. If, you, if you're a Christian in the room, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. To come forward and to take the, it's double cups, take the cup back and hold the bread in one hand. And hold the, the juice in the other. And I want you to take a, I want you to take a moment to confess. 
The band's gonna give us plenty of space, okay? We got plenty of time. I want you to just take some time and confess. What are you running to for your satisfaction, for your security, and for your hope? Where are you flirting with the world? And I want you to confess that to him. Then I just want you to say this simple line, but he gives us more grace as you hold the elements. And I'll come up in a minute and we'll take communion together. So I'm gonna pray in the next probably six, eight minutes in here for you to come and sing while you're in line. We come forward and we take communion together here in college, at Fellowship College. Uh, Sing while you're in line. Uh, And we're gonna take some time to confess. He gives us more grace. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that when you lured your people out into the wilderness, it wasn't to speak condemnation over them. No, speak tenderly that we might be restored and reconciled to you. We might find our joy and our hope and our significance and our security in you. So right now we come clean. We mourn for a minute that we might taste again to give us even more grace. We need to do this. I need to do this. So Jesus, these next few minutes, help remind us of your love. We pray this in your name. Amen. Tables are open, so come forward. uh, Grab some community elements. We'll take together in just a moment.